Welcome. This is uh, Radio Free Culture, a show from WFMU about the intersection of music, art, and technology. And today we'll be talking about artist revenue streams. It's an um, immense project from the Future of Music Coalition. Uh, we'll be joined by Gene Cook, who is the uh, director of programs at the Future Music Coalition and a co-director of the study, as well as uh, a musician. We'll also be joined by musicians uh, Greg Fox and Rebecca Gates. We'll be with you in just one moment here. In the background, we're listening to Yacht and an instrumental version of Shangri-La. So uh, welcome to Radio Free Culture. Uh, my name is Jason Siegel, and I'm joined by Jean Cook. Jean, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing doing pretty good. Um, the director, oh, the co-director of this of the study, Artist Revenue Streams, um, and Greg Greg Fox is here with us as well. Hello, Greg. How's it going? Good. And then uh, uh, calling in from Portland is Rebecca Gates. Rebecca, how are you? Hello, I'm great. So uh, we're talking about artist revenue streams, which is uh, the first ever study of how do musicians make make money from music. And uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, people have a lot of opinions about, about this. We hear a lot of anecdotes. And this is really the first time that there has been such a comprehensive study of, of how musicians actually actually. Um, earn income and how uh, how it's changing over time. So, Gene, uh, you are uh, also the director of programs at the Future Music Coalition, who, who sort of came up with this idea, and uh, how, how did the idea come about? Why, why do you think this had not been done before? Well, I think that, um, I think that people have measured how artists are doing. Um, that's an area of, of great interest, I think, to the field, since uh, the internet was such a disruptive force, and people want to understand how musicians are impacted by a lot of changes in the industry. Um, and so in the past, I, I, these studies have been done, but they've been done of specific populations. So, uh, you know, there are folks like the unions, like the American Federation of Musicians, they'll do studies of their members, or ASCAP or BMI will do studies of their members, or NARIS, which is the Grammys, it's a national recording, uh, National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, um, they'll, they'll do a study of their members. Um, what makes our study distinct, actually, is um, is that instead of uh, sticking to one particular membership, we kind of opened it up. Anybody 
who said that they were a musician, um, 18 or older, had a certain number of credits, a U.S. citizen, um, was free to take the survey. And we worked with 100 partners nationally, um, you know, ranging from national service organizations to like kind of local affinity groups um, to spread the word about about the survey. And so we were able to collect information from a very diverse group of musicians um, that was diverse in terms of genre, in terms of age, in terms of the roles that they played and the experiences that they had, and of course, in terms of their income. So, I mean, even before you started the survey, which ended up getting more than 5,000 responses, is that? That's right. We had 5,300 completes. Wow. Um, But you, even before starting the survey, had sort of identified like 25 different types of artists. Um, Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of this um, started a few years ago when we sat around and said, well, how many different revenue streams are there for musicians? And we sat down and we made a list. We're like, well, when you tour, that's money. And when you get money, like an advance from a record label, that's another income stream. When you get money from radio airplay, that's an income stream, merchandise. So we made a list about 29 and we wrote a blog post about it, and we called it the 29 streams. And, um, you know, as is kind of typical, if you go on the Internet and you say, I think that this might be the way things are, there are a lot of people who will show up and tell you why you're wrong. And um, in our particular case, um, there were a lot of really helpful people who helped us break it down, clarify different income streams. In the end, we ended up with about 42. And we used those 42 to uh, be the basis of the survey. Now, the survey that you mentioned that 5,300 people took is one part of our research. Um, In addition to um, the quantitative data that we were able to gather, which is really, really uh, compelling uh, because so many people did take the survey. Um, We also have some very, very good uh, qualitative data. We interviewed about 80 different kinds of musicians, and we also have, uh, we've published five case studies so far of individual artists um, that actually looks at their real numbers. We're talking about thousands and thousands of pages of record label statements and ASCAP statements and tour receipts. and That's that's a lot to keep track of. I, I bet most of. artists don't think to keep track of, of yeah, these well, types of things. Like, you know, like it's really funny. <laughs> when we were putting this project together, we realized that the only way this was actually going to happen, that we could capture this information, is we had to be willing to go to people's houses and, you know, they point us to the corner that they never go into with that box that just has everything in it that they've never really looked through, never had the time to, but always kind of knew that maybe they should hold on to it. And, you know, in some cases, you know, people can just get their accountant to send us a Quicken file, which is great, too. Um, But I think that some of the more interesting stories are from the people who don't have the kind of capacity to have an accountant to send you the Quicken file. And, you know, having to dig through crates and crates and crates of information is also one of the things that we built into the study to be willing to do. Now, the thing that you were asking about, which is the 21 different kinds of musicians, um, when we were deciding who to interview, Mm -hmm. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were mapping the field in an appropriate way, that we were um, asking people these questions, but that we weren't asking all the same kind of musician. So we thought about the different roles that a musician could have. So a musician can be a performer, they could be a composer, um, they can be a recording artist, um, they can be a session musician, um, and then there are a few different roles as well that we kind of figured out. Um, but even within those roles, if you kind of filter it by genre, you'll find that the income streams for these musicians will be really different. So for a composer, for example, you might think that, oh, well, if you're a composer, who doesn't perform, 
um, maybe your income streams are kind of going to always be the same. But then you think about it a little further and you're like, well, there's like a symphony composer and they're getting like commissions and stuff. But then there's also like a jingle composer and they're getting commissions of a sort, but it's really different. And they're more likely to get performance royalties if they're, you know, writing jingles for broadcast. Um, and then there are people who compose for film. There are people who are um, like Nashville songwriters, people who write hits. Like, and those are just four examples of composers who may not perform. And we're talking about actually many, many different kinds of income streams. And they're all really different from each other. So that's why it was really important for us to start out when we were figuring out who we were going to interview um, to start out by mapping as much as we could. Now, this is not a definitive list of the 21, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a place for us to get started. So uh, probably a lot of musicians out there are listening, and uh, hopefully by the end of the show we're going to have some, some answers for you based on what type of musician you are, what is the magic, the magic amount of uh, you know, these different, different activities that... I, I'm, I'm sort of joking, Gene, but is, this, <laughs> is there... I mean, uh, what what are some of some of the trends that we're starting to see um, as as we go through as we go through the data? Well, the interesting thing about the data is that you know we are kind of buried in it. There's a lot. Um, you know, every person who took the survey took between twenty and one hundred and twenty questions. They answered between twenty and one hundred and twenty questions. And when you think about that, plus there's over 5,000 people that took the survey. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of data points that we've been collecting um, from the survey alone. And then we've got the thousands of pages of financial records and also of the transcripts as well. And one thing to remember with this data set is that there's a lot that you can glean from it and um, and uh, about relationships of, of musicians to various income streams and how when you filter it by genre by role how things change and now we're actually about to do a location like a location uh, analysis which I think is going to be really interesting looking at musicians from music cities versus non-music cities and in our case we're, we're defining music city um, as like New York uh, Los Angeles Nashville um, places like that um, but all of these things are just a snapshot mm-hmm. so they're a snapshot of a particular uh, point in time, particular experiences. Um, we are able to map out things like uh, get a sense of, say, what a jazz musician's income is if they're not in the union, and then you can put it on a chart, like by age, and you see like a curve. But that's not a curve uh, over time of an individual musician. That's a snapshot of people, young people and old people who are all kind of working jazz musicians. Um, it's the, the only information we have about trends is what people are reporting to us. So they'll say, well, I think that this income has gone up or down in the last right. five there years. There was a question about, and you this know, is, how, has it changed in the last five yeah, years? Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think that that's just one kind of grain of salt that we need to put out there, which is that um, you can tell you can tell a lot of stories from the data that we have, um, but all of the all of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of how things have changed are based on people's perceptions of what have changed. And sometimes people's perceptions, especially around money, um, it, it's it's not always the clearest way of really understanding what has changed. So it can really just suggest ideas of how things might have changed, but it isn't necessarily any kind of facts that we're gathering from it. Mm-hmm. That well, said, everybody noticed that the internet happened. Yes. And that that's changed a lot of things for some people. Um, obviously, the method of distribution for recordings has changed. Um, the platforms that you can release your music through have changed. How you develop audiences have changed. But it's, it's, it, how it's impacted people depends on 
what roles they play. So, for example, if you're a session musician, probably your income hasn't really changed all that much because people still need you to go to shows. You don't really have a brand that you need to maintain. So a lot of the new Internet platforms don't necessarily apply to you versus if you are a songwriter and a leader of a band. A lot of things have changed. Um, we all, we're also finding that by genre, things are really different. I think that for jazz and for classical folks, when we take a look at their comfort level with technology, they're kind of consistently across the board less comfortable um, in using the Internet to promote their music and to distribute their music and to collaborate with others and to develop relationships with fans. Now, in the case is of... This, is, is this even kind of... You seem to be very much in uh, one foot in the, the new classical world, kind of new, newer... Um, less traditional forms of classical music it seems it seems that maybe there there are musicians who are who are using technology in more effective ways definitely i mean i think you're going to find exceptions to every rule mm -hmm. that you're kind of coming away from the data with for sure um, i think that overall just based on uh, these are the survey numbers so the people who took our survey of those people that the classical people tended to be uh, less comfortable across the board and i think that um, for the most part, it makes sense because many of those people were um, in symphony orchestras, for example, um, or, you know, there were session musicians. Um, and so for them, the need to engage in a lot of these technologies, I think it's just a different kind of a situation. It's not like they have fans that they're necessarily um, trying to develop for their symphony orchestra. The symphony orchestra's management tends to do that kind of work, not the individual members of the orchestra. So the structure of, of that particular genre can be different. You're right, though, that there are a lot of crossover groups, a lot of new music groups, uh, chamber music groups that um, that are certainly on the edge of, uh, you know, they use technology on a regular basis to communicate with their friends. It's just a natural way of expressing yourself. And so, of course, there uh, you are going to see many uh, folks from the classical and the jazz field that are engaging um, in this space. But I would say that overall, if you were to look at an aggregate of a lot of people's experience, which is what the survey does, is is that we're seeing that they're a little bit behind. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, speaking of, of kind of this before and after after the internet, um, I want to get uh, Re Rebecca Gates, who, who released... Um, Rebecca, you, you first released music in, in 1993 with the Spinanes. Yeah, and we 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 released. Um, we did two uh, two seven inches in '91 with a small label in Portland called Imp Records, and then the first album came out in 1993 with Sub Pop. And uh, the uh, you know you you had this fantastic album, The Float, that came out last year um, on your own label and also split with uh, the label One Two XU. Um, but that that was actually your first release in 11 years, right? And 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 I'm wondering, you know, if what, what was your inspiration to uh, get involved in in uh, the the artist revenue streams project? Because you were you were involved at, at the beginning doing doing some interviews and yeah. Well, basically, um, I've been fortunate to be involved with the Future Music Coalition um, over a couple of years, just 
volunteering and, you know, um, helping them with their work and being inspired by their work. And when I came, um, I quit releasing, uh, I quit working uh, actively in the music business for I still kept releasing tra- some little tracks here and there and touring a lot and guest vocal and guest playing on people's albums. But from 2001 to last year, I didn't actually release my own record. And so when um, I decided to release the record, I started working on it in well, I'd been working on it, recording it for some time, but when I when I got to the point where I wanted to release it in about 2010, late 2010, or, or uh, 2011, I was looking at a lot of different modes to release the record because basically in the time since I had put out my last record, as Jean says, the internet had happened, you know, and it was a very a very different scene and a lot of it was really inspiring and it felt like there were a lot of potentials, but it also felt like there were um, a lot certain resources that should be available that weren't available. So I was kind of mulling a lot of things over on my own and just in terms of my personal practice. And um, Jean and Kristen had actually been working on the survey for a while, quite a while before I came in. But I was very fortunate to be brought in for a period of time and assist with some of the interviews and um, help them think through, uh, along with a group of people, um, the online survey and uh, start getting some of the the stories from musicians and some of the um, some of the you know some of the details and case studies as well. Yeah. Now, Rebecca, uh, some something that we talked about sort of off mic is, you know, in different styles of music, um, it's like not it's not cool to talk about about money necessarily. And you sort of have the the Northwest punk background where where uh, that wasn't part of maybe, maybe it wasn't as much part of uh, a conversation as, as maybe it should be. Well, I think that's something that's really uh, amazing about the survey and what it offers is that there are, as Gina's touched on, so many different experiences uh, by musicians in similar genres, and then there's a wide range of experiences from a you know musician. There is no one story, really, and there is an aggregate of experience, but there's just a lot of different exceptions. But one of the things that was interesting for me as I started talking to musicians as part of the survey and then just in terms of my own work, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of sort of cultural conditioning that is part, that are part of different genres. And so even in terms of treating, you know, treating your own work as an independent musician sort of as a small business or actually kind of stepping up and saying, yeah, I've, I've put these in and these are my expenses and here's my return or whatever, that that's something that uh, a lot of, at least in my world, a lot of indie rockers or rock and rollers or just sort of independent musicians in any genre are slow to come to and are maybe uncomfortable speaking about. And, and there was always a huge question, you know, of like, are you... Are you selling out, you know, from fans? I mean, it was just always kind of like you should just be uh, not not thinking in terms of, of a business or not thinking in terms of the money that you are making, um, whereas there's other genres where that's just not even a question. You know, if you're going to show up and you're going to play in a symphony or you're going to play in a jazz commission, you're going to do these things like, here's the, here's this, here's this is set up. And then, um, you know, in hip-hop, there's... there's definitely a lot more comfort in talking about money and making money in different ways of strategizing across different revenue streams. And that was something that was really interesting to me as I started hearing stories and, and working on the survey. Well, the uh, yeah, this idea of, of sort of selling out, I think, has, has changed a lot as the source source of uh, you know financial support for musicians has, has really shifted from, um, you know, 
that there was kind of this old model where a label would give an artist an advance and help fund their work in a studio. And, uh, I mean, is that, is that something that, that is happening these days? I, I feel like, uh, you know, there's like the converse recording studio <laughs> that's that where, right. where brands are actually, um, kind of supporting musicians rather than, well, it, than it, record it, labels. It, it's a complicated, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a hydra of, uh, of different, um, scenarios, but I think that, you know, there's definitely still labels that exist, both small and large that are, uh, following a sort of traditional business model with their artists in terms of advances and ownership and expectations. Um, there's small labels who are doing variations on a theme. There's musicians that don't, you know, that there's no label and you're just doing it on your own. Um, and also, you know, there are commercial, so there's not really necessary that, that binary, you know, us or them or you're independent or you're major. I mean, it's just uh, really a variety of experiences. And, you know, that's something we saw in the survey is that in many ways this shift has been really positive and in other ways it's been negative and the perceptions differ around what, you know, according to each musician. Uh, I mean, the thing that's interesting is that you know, sync licensing and um, commission for ads and placement has become such a huge part of how musicians, uh, some musicians can can have some income, additional income. But one of the things that's interesting is that that was, you know, I mean, I was, that uh, was absolutely frowned on. That was the ultimate sellout, you know, in a lot of ways. And so it's interesting, back, you know, when I was, when I was releasing records with Sub Pop. Yeah, like, I mean, I like remember, music. You know, someone, someone, the first, like, someone who sold a song to The Gap, it was just, like, criminal. <laughs> you know, and now that's something that um, is, ads are a way that uh, are covering some of the uh, scarcity in broadcast medium. You know, some people might hear a song on an ad more than they're going to hear it on their FM radio station. Um, well, I want, I want to get uh, Greg in here a little bit. We've got uh, this big list of 42 different revenue streams started out as 29 and by the end of, of the survey it w- it was it reached 42 and uh greg I, I invited you to the program because just uh seen seen that you were actually kind of doing a, a whole bunch of these um you know from from plane shows to i think you have you have uh sponsorship for for drumsticks right i wish i have oh. a, i have a <laughs> I have a symbol endorsement. Symbols. Oh, that's yeah. That's probably which better. Which doesn't mean you get them for free. It means you just can pay less, and then sometimes they'll give you a, a symbol after a couple of years or two or something like this. Um, and you're well. You're also playing in in so many different projects, as ranging from uh, roles as a composer to uh, um, you know you just toured uh, Japan, right? With, yeah. With the group Z's. Yes, and I was playing solo shows there too. Ah. Cool. Um, so, so what has, uh, I mean, what, uh, what sort of drives your your approach to to music, and and is are you thinking of of these different revenue streams as, as you're doing it, or or is that kind of just like like on the side, you know? Hey, I'm not I'm not thinking of, I'm not really thinking specifically about revenue streams when I'm thinking about taking opportunities or not or following, you know, or stepping through doors as they open or however you'd want to put it. Um, I, I just sort of weigh things as they come and mm-hmm. judge them to be worth the time and effort or not. And, um, or, you know, sometimes you, there's a bit of time where you can kind of feel it out and decide whether or not it's 
going to be worthwhile or not. Um, I mean, you. Uh, it seems like you are right now. You're you're playing a show every night. I've one or two. Five. I think five or six this week. Yeah. That's uh. That's that's a busy schedule. Yeah. Well, that's how I make. That's how I. That's what I mean. The short answer to how I make money as a professional musician is, I'm I play a lot. You play a lot. I mean, you know, and that takes a lot of different forms, but um, it works for me. It I mean, to to a certain extent, it works. It could work a lot better, but uh, but it's working and it's getting better and better. The more attention and effort I put into it, the more it's the more rewarding it is in 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 many ways. Not the least of which, you know, as far as it being something that supports me. Uh, you know, paying my rent and stuff. It's um. So so you've, can we just kind of get a sense of some of the different different roles that that you've you played. Um, from you you've done commissioned work. Yeah. What what are some examples of that? Um, I have done music for uh, I've done music for a couple different video games. Uh, sound video game soundtracks, and I've done some uh, music for film soundtracks as well. Um, and uh, as far as commissions go, that covers it. Ba- mostly video game stuff I've done. Um, that's so. That's that's a. Uh, I guess the cool thing about about that type of work is is it is it uh, kind of a one time commission or is it is it something where you're getting royalties as as the video game is sold or, or downloaded or well i think that that depends on the situation i don't know if there's a way that that's done but uh in my experience uh the one of the games i did i was paid a flat fee to mm-hmm. do it uh you know basically they were they were buying from me the right to use the music in a game um and like I and I maintained yeah I maintained the rights to the music to use however I wanted basically but they would use it in this for you know for this game uh, and then in another another for a while I was working with an independent video game developer so for most of that there wasn't any uh, money but we actually then won a uh, an award for. Um, at w- uh, what was called the Nuovo Award at the Independent uh, Game Developers Conference, which was a cash prize awarded for, um, I guess, you know, uh, originality in game design, uh, art and music within the game design. And I, I bet you had no idea how to divide that up. You had you something you hadn't talked about. Well, um, that's a that kind of that kind of opens up a bit of a longer story, but. Uh, well, we don't have to go down. Yeah, I mean, it. it no, I mean, hole. it was there was me. There were only two of us working on the on the game, so uh, it seemed pretty clear. But um, but I but I think that that kind of shed some light on one of the sort of like lessons I've learned along the road of doing this, which is that it's very important to work out financial aspects of work before you do the work. I mean, I think that applies to. I, I think that that applies to like everything. I don't think that's just something about music or you know making money as a musician or like something like that. I think that that applies to like any time you're doing work where mm-hmm. you're working with people and there's money involved. I think it's generally good practice to, you know, get that discussion out of the way beforehand as opposed to after the fact. Yeah. Um, well, that that sort of relates to something that that Gene has uh, been talking about. Uh, which is leverage the the idea of how, I mean le- leverage is is at least in, 
in the way that you've been talking about it seems to be more kind of the, the big picture of who negotiates um, kind of behind the scenes what what you are, are as a composer or as a recording artist, what you're getting paid for like a Spotify stream. Um, Gene, what, what is this uh, leverage and how, how does the, the new data that we have um, possibly inform uh, you know, future, future, uh, these, these percentage points and things like that. Sure. I mean, I think that one of the most striking takeaways from our work with this data is that, you know, future music, we're not just researchers looking at income. We do a lot of work in the policy space and, and we pay attention to new business models and we understand how the music industry works. And that one of the things that kind of struck us was that of all the different income streams, that there are definitely some that the artist is able to kind of negotiate on their own behalf. Um, and, you know, things like if you're if you're teaching, for example, you can set the rate that you're going to get paid um, by your student or by the school that you're working for. Um, and or if you're, you know, winning a prize or something like that, um, like the Nuovo Award, like that's a set amount of money. It's not like you're going to have to negotiate that. But then there's this other category um, of income that actually the rate gets negotiated and the artist isn't really involved in, in setting that rate. Um, so it's it's not like the person either offers what they offer or the artist sets it. It's like this other party that comes in and sets those rates. And a lot of the new business models that are developing now, things like Spotify, things like Pandora, um, even iTunes and how mechanical royalties are set, all of that stuff is done by middlemen. And that when as we were mapping through the space, we were discovering, um, well, not discovering, because I think that we kind of knew it all along, but we started to document how how not all middlemen kind of operate in the same kind of way. So you have people like ASCAP and BMI and CSAC who collect performance royalties for composers. And so when your film score gets played in, you know, in a cinema in Italy or whatever, the, they somebody collects money in Italy and sends it over to ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, whoever you're registered with, and you get the money. Um, but in addition to that, you know, if you want to, I think right now, um, if, if you want to uh, do any kind of streaming in general, you do have to talk to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC about their catalogs, about getting permission to do so. So Spotify uh, pays ASCAP, and, um, and Pandora pays ASCAP, and, uh, and, and that's... And, and so those are two examples um, and that ASCAP sets the rates you know they get together and they do these private negotiations and, and they figure out the rate is or um, ASCAP actually might just decide what the rate's going to be through rate court um, there's all these different processes so that's kind of one example of, of middlemen ASCAP would be another uh, ASCAP would be one sound exchange would be another they collect for performers so when uh, music gets uh, played on digital radio so that would be like a webcast like the, a webcast of WFMU mm -hmm. as one example, or Sirius um, X, XM, uh, Sirius XM, or um, actually there are these weird channels on cable television that don't have video but only have music. Like they also pay. My parents like those. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> musicians make money from that. So, um, so anyway, that's what Sound Exchange collects for it, and they have a, a process that goes through the Copyright Royalty Board, where a lot of lawyers get together and they argue with each other about you know, why music services are ripping off artists or how artists are killing music services and then the judges decide how much the rate's going to be. And then there's this whole other 
category of middleman, uh, which is like the major labels. Um, so the major labels set what the rate is for Spotify. Um, and that what we noticed when we were looking at these different middlemen is that they're not all the same. And that the royalty collecting agencies like Sound Exchange um, or BMI, ASCAP, and in some cases the unions, um, AFM or AFTRA, they might kind of negotiate um, what people are going to get paid for, like TV uses or something like that. So, like, um, so of all the middlemen, the major labels actually end up being um, slightly problematic. Uh, slightly problematic uh, middlemen because a lot of what they do is secret. A lot of what they do is negotiated completely privately. Uh, there's NDAs associated, non-disclosure agreements associated with putting these deals together. Um, and that when it comes to issues of, you know, like publishing the rate, okay, so that's that's not known. Although, you know, if you're going to negotiate with some of the other middlemen, you, you do tend to know what the rate is, even if it is complicated and hard to understand. Um, so the rate's not published. Um, the payment structure Structures like um, uh, major labels have a history of being unreliable payment agents, for example, um, and so you don't know how much you're supposed to get paid. And then when they do pay you, they're not very clear about what it is that they're paying you for. Um, and then, and and part of this has all kind of boiled down to a concept of leverage. Um, and so we 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 put a presentation together that kind of talks about the idea of leverage that um, that. Major labels is one example. They have a lot of leverage with a lot of new music services that want to develop because all the new music services need to get their permission for the most part to operate. Um, they need their permission to use their catalogs, and that's a leverage point for them. Another example of, of leverage would be um, like if I was the only violin player in town and then all of a sudden like 10 bands came through town and they all need a violin player, I have a lot of leverage. If I'm the only violin player, um, I can charge whatever I want. Um, so leverage is kind of based on scarcity a little bit, um, but sometimes it's also about being able to demonstrate that you have a, a certain amount of power as well. And so this is a really interesting concept for us because for the most part, individual musicians don't have leverage. And the only way they get leverage is by banding together with other musicians. And so that's why uh, folks like ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, people like the unions, AFM and AFTRA, people like Sound Exchange, um, even though um, you know these are large bureaucratic organizations in some cases, and, they, and they're not perfect, um, sometimes they have their problems, but ultimately, uh, if, if you were to ask me, like, in terms of, like, is it good for musicians or bad for musicians, I'll always say that it's good for musicians because for individual musicians to be able to build the kind of power so that they can actually negotiate what rates are going to be paid um, when you're looking at these new business models is, is always a positive thing. You really don't. I mean, just as my personal opinion, this is not the opinion of our study and it's not the opinion of Future sure, Music no, Coalition we, necessarily. I mean, you, you are also a musician and, and have, a, I think, a really important personal perspective as a yeah. Well, I mean, I just don't, I mean, like, the, in the case of Spotify, for example, yeah. like, when Spotify finally got licensed in the United States, they set the rate, uh, the major labels basically set the rate that, that was going to get paid. Um, I don't think the independent labels really had much of a say in what the rate was going to be. It was really the major labels that kind of set the table for that. And, you know, the rate that they ended up negotiating, um, I think, was probably lower than what it could have been, in part because um, they took an equity stake in Spotify. So when Spotify profits, the major labels get paid, and um, which is, is kind of interesting. It ends up driving the royalty rate down, but they get the same amount of money. And um, 
And the thing about uh, an equity stake is that, you know, does any of that end up trickling back down to the artists? Because the reason why the labels are at this table in the first place is because they've aggregated the copyright of, you know, millions of artists. And so it's it's really unclear as to whether or not these equity stakes are going to end up getting passed on to the artists. It was also unclear back like five years ago or 10 years ago when the labels were like suing everybody. It's like what happened right. to all the money that they collected from the people that they considered pirates in that in that big campaign to sue all the fans of music. Um, you know, is that ending ending up getting paid to individual artists? They're unreliable payment agents, so this is just kind of one of the those kind of categorical things for me, which is that you know, if there isn't a lot of transparency, if there isn't uh, kind of clear reporting to individual artists, um, you know, if if there isn't any kind of artist oversight over a process, then I just feel like it's not going it's going to be disadvantaging individual artists. Um. Let's take just just a quick break, and we are going to be back. We have some great comments happening right now at WFMU.org. One is from Droll, who says, So far, this conversation seems to be about how musicians need to change their expectations to match the world as it is today. I guess that's from when we were talking about, you know, oh, but that was before the Internet. Um, But Droll is saying, actually, uh, sites like YouTube legitimize the theft by knowingly allowing unauthorized copies. This is the root of the problem. So uh, let's hear just a little bit of, uh, this is actually a project that, that Gene Cook is involved with called Antisocial Music, and we'll be back with Gene Cook, Greg Fox, and Rebecca Gates here in just a minute. And we're back here on Radio Free Culture. Um, this is a- anti-social music. Uh, that's a 
Gene, can you tell us a little bit about this piece? It's actually a, a cover, I guess, or collaboration with, with dialect from, from right here in New Jersey. Right. It's a collaboration with dialect. It's a piece that they wrote for antisocial music. So ASM is a chamber music group that's based in New York City. It's been around for about 12 years, and we've been collaborating with um, with people who work kind of outside of the conventional indie rock genre, but um, have, have and have really, really big ideas. And so some of the stuff that we've done in the past include like, you know, a multimedia indie opera, like 12 years ago. And um, and then most recently, this recording, which is a collaboration with Dialect. They, they created the music. We figured out how to get a live orchestra to play it. We've done it live a few times. Um, it's always a great experience because it's a 19-minute kind of very, very, very loud, low-end, kind of droney, very, very scary piece. And yeah. um, and when you listen to it, you have to turn it up really, really loud because that's kind of the experience of Dialect live. And um, they were really surprised when we ended up performing it for the first time because they didn't really think about how acoustic instruments could kind of get that same kind of a feeling. And, of course, the acoustic instruments had help, like octave pedals and different kinds of amplification. But it's a, it was a really fun project to put together. So it's actually up um, as a pay-what-you-want download on Bandcamp. I know it's also a, a limited LP, it looks like. Um, but I, I would like to talk about kind of this balance between the pay-what-you-want download um, and physical physical sales. Um, you know, what what was some of the... And also also there's a track that I, I hope to, to have queued up from, uh, from Guardian Alien that's also a, a free download via the label, via Thrill Jockey. You know, what's um, droll... Has has this great comment on on the playlist page saying that it's not about musicians who need to adapt to having their work stolen. Uh, talk about why fans force musicians to justify getting paid for their work, and that's uh, that's sort of an intense intense uh, comment from Droll. But I'm I'm wondering what you know what what was the thought process to to make that track avail- available for free. Well, we had put it together actually as we weren't going to make it available online at all. Oh. Um, initially, uh, we were we. It's it's a hundred eighty gram vinyl. It's like a really really nice um, LP pressing that we've done, and it actually comes with like a paperboard sculpture by Scrapworm, who's one of the artists that we've worked with over the years, and it kind of like folds out into a cube. It's kind of this. It's this physical product that we've created. Um, it's an art piece. It's a limited edition uh, art piece. And um, and then kind of somewhere along the line, uh, when we were putting this together, we always anticipated that it would just be something that we would give, you know, that we would sell to people as, a, as an art piece. But we were actually taking everything that we've done and we're like, you know, maybe we should just put everything online um, and, and make it available. We document all of our performances. And one of the things that we do, we do a lot of contemporary music, like people who are in the 20s and 30s who want to write really weird music. Um, for classically trained musicians who can also improvise, like they come to us, we play their music, and um, and we and part of what we do is I think that we document it. So then I think there was just kind of uh, a point at which we all looked at each other and we're like, well, let's just put everything online, and that's when we put the Bandcamp account together, and it just seemed to make sense to make this piece available as well because it's hard to explain what it is <laughs> without listening to it. Yeah, and we didn't without listening to the whole thing. I'm sorry barriers. to just sorry just play an excerpt um and uh 
Well, well, I also want to talk about about YouTube because YouTube has become a way that a lot of people listen to music, and YouTube partnerships is actually one of the forty two revenue streams, um, where where uh, you know if an, if a uh, if you register your content, they call it content, not music. Um, your content with YouTube's content ID, you can either uh, choose to to remove all music or all all YouTube videos that that have your work on them from the site you can just mute the audio if it's just your music that's that's been incorporated or you can actually collect i guess uh what amounts to it sounds like for uh the harlem shake which has become this big viral thing recently uh the artist bauer um it amounts to like two dollars per one thousand youtube views something like that that's Um, not bad that's I mean, yeah, if you have millions of views, that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, when you think about the, some of the streaming, so when you think about some of the streaming income, um, I, the Spotify rate is is secret, but a lot of people who look at their statements will kind of calculate it out. It'll be like, you know, what is it like, tenths of a yeah. tenths of a penny, or like you know, four tenths of a penny, or something like that. And so, four tenths of a penny. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do the math times a thousand. My mother would be so disappointed in me. Um, but, you know, what does that end up adding up to? And it seems like the basic rate seems not so not so bad. I mean, it's not as good as uh, terrestrial radio. I mean, like terrestrial radio, people definitely get more per play. But, you know, it's it's really hard to know what the right amount is going to be because there's a sweet spot, right? There's yeah. a sweet spot of what is going to be enough money so that the artists feel like that it's fair. It's always going to be more than the service can pay. Um, but, but you know, how much the services want to pay is always going to be too low, too, because, you know, they want to try and minimize their costs as they try to get their business off the ground. And ultimately, it's going to be a combination of the music of these artists and the way the service delivers them. I think services do add value. Uh, they do create a crowd for for music and so yeah, if, if YouTube did not exist yeah. then this Harlem Shake phenomenon would not have taken off sure um, it's uh, I guess it's become the most the most successful recording on on the Mad Decent label which is which is pretty cool um, Greg, Greg I'm wondering what what role you know YouTube plays in, in I know you've you've done music videos yeah um, I mean, you know, music videos are, you know, still, I think, as they were before, good tools for promotion of the record or of the tour, you know. Um, I mean, my, it, my experience is that I, you know, I basically support myself by playing live. That is, that is for the most part, the way that I personally make money. So um, as far as YouTube and as far as YouTube is concerned, that is a promotional tool. It's less something where I would look to try to get uh, revenue from um, mm-hmm. because I don't, you know, uh, you know, if like a vi- if like a YouTube if like a music video gets a ton of uh, play or something like that, maybe that would be it would be cool to monetize that somehow. But it but it seems in my experience to be more the kind of thing where it's like, you know, videos of that people take of a live performance of the band or something like this. And then that generates excitement or that's used by another venue to promote the show. It's like, Oh, here, here, check out this link to this video of this. You can expect this 
you know, to a certain extent or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, the line between the promotional um, and and where if, if something really takes off, then, yeah, it would be, would be cool to get a little bit of revenue from it. But um, Yeah, Re- Re- Rebecca, uh, we're, we've also, we're also joined by Rebecca Gates via, via Skype. Um, is YouTube something that that plays into into your approach? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually, you know, that it's just that something that I have prob- that I've invested much time in developing, and <clears throat> that's just it's it's one of the things that I am aware of, and it's something, it's nice to know that that potential is there, and you know, even if it's just pennies. But you know, for me, it's. Um, I'm a very strong believer in sound and even negotiating how much sound and music comes through visual channels these days for me is just philosophically something that I not struggle with but that I consider uh, we actually for a couple reasons didn't even make a video for the last record which is ridiculous but it's just something you know it's just sort of how that played out and a lot of that is me re-entering working and figuring out where I have capacity and where I can um, what I choose to be involved with and how we spend our time and our resources. Uh, I, you know, I listen to YouTube. I think one of the things that's, that's interesting is that you have a, something like YouTube where obviously they're building their own, um, they're building their own brand and they're building their own business, but uh, they are, have reached out to, to try and do these partnership programs and they are thinking in terms of how, uh, how to compensate artists. And that's something that I, I think that there is such a wide range of how different uh, portals are dealing with the question of compensating musicians. And so even something, it's, I just think that that's something that also is important to consider how granular some of this can get, which is that you know there's different ways of of considering even in terms of a certain a digital service positioning themselves as either streaming or as a sales service and like trying to get different royalties and I think that um you know I appreciate that YouTube has tried to offer a a sort of active partnership with musicians and recognize um what how much of an input they're having as they build that business where there's other businesses that sort of don't really seem to care much about music, about artists' businesses. It's just mostly about um, stockholders or potential VC funding. <laughs> One of the things that, because um, we meet with a lot of policymakers around our work, because they're all kind of curious to see how artists are doing. And one of the things that's been a source of surprise, or, you know, like people are, they look at it and like, oh, really, is that the case? Um, is that YouTube money, when we ask people if they receive any of it, um, I think that the answer was maybe less than 2% of the musicians that we surveyed reported getting any money from YouTube. Hmm. Um, When we ask people about fan funding, which is another thing, something like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, um, which I think have been getting a lot of play in the trade press, like people in the music industry like to talk about what are the new big business models going to be. And definitely Kickstarter ends up coming into the equation with the last year, people like Amanda Palmer. But um, I think that's less than, it's like between 5 and 6% of the musicians that we surveyed reported receiving income from that source. Um, we talk about things like... Um, talk about things like branding opportunities for people, like new kinds of merchandising opportunities. Um, that was one of the first presentations that we did for 
our project and it was at Medium where they wanted to know like how important is is brands to individual artists and that we found overall that branding related revenue if you were to count like all merchandise and like persona stuff or um, uh, any kind of other like clothing lines or things like that I mean like they tended to be uh, again a very small percentage of income for individual artists so um, you know before when I was saying that YouTube is is 2% that's 2% of people reported saying that they had that kind of income and that uh, the fan funding is is 5% of, of people reported um, saying that they had that kind of income. When it comes to the branding question, it's slightly different. It's that I think it ended up being like 4% of income, um, of people's income ended up being from branding-related stuff. So again, uh-huh. these are very small numbers. Um, well, we just have a few minutes left. I want to I take some calls. We also have people uh, commenting up at WFMU.org, which is a way to ask a question. Um, and the phone number here is 201-209-9368. And uh, once again, it's 201-209-9368. I want to talk just a little bit more about about percentages. Uh, There was this study from Peter DeCola, who who, uh, is a law professor and participated in... Peter DeCola is part of our research team. Part of the research team. Mm -hmm. And so, just kind of one examples of one one more example of somebody who's taking this this data and um, analyzing it. Uh, he he uh, released a, a paper about how basically trying to take the, this data and figure out how copyright incentives um, how how to uh, determine you know what whether copyright could be changed to provide more or less incentives and, and how copyright seems to play. A role in um, in artist revenue streams. Um, so he sort he he divided things up into like. Uh, uh, Are you talking about table seven? Table seven. Are you talking about table? Because he's got this beautiful table okay. that I love, um, which is just like <laughs> he divided people. He divided all the people who took the survey into four categories, right? right. So like, there's jazz, there's classical, there's um, composers who, you know, sometimes people would say they were a composer, they wouldn't say what genre they're in, um, and then everybody else. And that if you took those four categories and then you were like, well, what's the top 1%, like the top top 1% of earners, um, like how much of their income is copyright related? And then how much of it is, you know, directly related to copyright, indirectly related to copyright, um, somewhat mixed kind of related to right. copyright. Um, and, and he kind of did that for all of the different income strata for those four different categories. And it's a beautiful chart. I mean, this the, it's his draft of the paper that's available on SSRN right now. It actually hasn't been published yet. It's going to be published in the spring in the uh, Arizona Law Journal. But it's a beautiful chart because what you get to see there then is that if you do care about copyright, you will see that there are certain categories of, of, of musician that we have surveyed um, that clearly depend on copyright. Like composers, anyone who's earning a lot of money, um, like the top earners all rely on copyright much more than people who are the, on, on the lower end of the um, earning scale. And then people who um, are in classical and jazz rely on copyright less. Um, obviously composers rely on copyright the most. And they're actually the ones who've been the most vocal 
about some of the changes that we've seen in the industry. If you if you pay attention to the policy space, um, you'll see people like the Songwriters Guild of America, or you'll see Nashville Songwriters Association International talking about how their entire industry is just kind of fallen apart. And for the most part, they're right. I talked about the four different kinds of composers earlier tonight. One of those was a Nashville composer, people who write songs that are hits. Those right. guys are really taking a big hit right now with the changes that are happening. It's, But it, it is a, a real range, and uh, the I think that it, it kind of ranged, ranged from uh, you know the top top earners who are also composers. They're, they were earning like 67% uh, from directly related to copyright I think that was the number um, but then if you if you look at um, other musicians it can be as as you know musicians who aren't composers obviously um, that's it's it's a, it can be a much smaller percentage um, we have a, a question from Andrea who is also also helping out um, with the program today uh, say, saying today the six strikes copyright enforcement system went into effect meaning if you're downloading um, music or, or movies on the internet um, it's possible that somebody is watching you and they're going to throttle your bandwidth and send you some some uh, educational resources um, should should musicians expect a huge surge in, rev- surge in revenue fr- from that no <laughs> why, I doubt it highly why is that Greg why is that? I mean, music. You know, should musicians? I don't know, like very famous musicians. Maybe like that might it might like help them more because like those are the people whose stuff is getting pirated the most. But like for people who are kind of like, you know, not famous, pirating helps. I think you know to a large degree. It might take a little bit of money out, but we're not making money on record sales. We're making money on performance. So you know what I mean. That. I don't see that helping me so much or people I know. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. I, like, I feel like that actually threatens me more than <laughs> it does. Because uh, then it's like the, the resources that people have to hear music will also kind of be throttled. Not um, to mention that I, you know, yeah, yes, that's what I'm, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Rebecca, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what, what your perspective is on Six Strikes. I mean, it's just one of the... It's, there's been so many clumsy attempts to address the new technology, you know, and, and from SOPA people all the way to things like this. And, and there's so many, um, it's what Jean was addressing in terms of leverage, you know, it's just a different aspect of that and who has the leverage to affect policy. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that's great about what the future of music does is that it helps translate what's happening on the hill out and also going back in and, and um, just having a presence on that hi- on the hill is so important for pra- you know for independent artist practice and in terms of I mean I can't yeah. I don't know enough about it to get into it specifically um, well, we're, we are but I but I you know I would just say really quickly that I would really be excited if we could start um, addressing some of these issues less from a punitive point of view and into a more creative addressing what the landscape actually looks like and who's working in it you know anything from the Aaron Swartz issues to just policy and piracy issues well yeah and and the the uh, artist revenue streams data seems like a great place to start it's already is gene are, are we already seeing examples where where artist revenue streams is actually informing actual policy i think that we are actually um we've been asked to present 
to a number of policymakers, like whether it be people who work on um, copyright every day to people who have to, to deal with copyright every once in a while. Um, they all take this um, data that we've put together with great interest um, because it's just been a whole um, if they wanted to understand how things were impacting the music community, they had to rely on reports from people like the Recording Industry Association of America or uh, other kinds of trade groups, or they'd have to rely on um, maybe music services to give them data about how things are impacting artists. Um, this is really filling a gap for a lot of those folks. I think um, what, how it's going to impact policy is that it's going to be um, it's it's just that musicians have another seat at the table now because they do have data they, they can present on various views and that you know over the next few months one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is that you know it's it's not just a data set that you write a report and then you file the report away it's um it's actually this massive set of data that you can filter in so many different ways so if you wanted to test what new policies would look like yeah. if you wanted to say like okay well is the six strikes thing going to be increasing the musician's bottom line? We can actually take a look and, and try and figure out, well, how much of the income do musicians receive from the internet? And then who's most likely to benefit from this? You were saying that it's going to be the wealthiest musicians, and that probably is the case because they're the ones who earn the most from copyright-related income. Uh, but we would be able to kind of filter out the set that we have to try and better understand how certain things might impact the community. Well, it's it's really exciting work, and I, Gene Cook, uh, co-director of, of the Artist Revenue Streams project, uh, thank you so much for joining. Greg Fox, musician, uh, we... We, I'm sorry we didn't get into all the music that I wanted to play, Greg. And, uh, and also Rebecca Gates, uh, thank you very much for joining. Um, I'm going to have to clear, clear the uh, decks for Nardwar, who's coming your way right now. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, and thanks to National Endowment for the Arts for helping making, make this program possible. Radio Free Culture archived up at wfmu.org slash playlist slash fc. This is WFMU East Orange. WMFU Mount Hope in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. TV.
Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Frida Payne with I. And you're listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there a song written by. Flying Lotus's grandma, Marilyn McLeod. We're talking Frida Payne's I Get High. And today on the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Flying Lotus. Plus, an interview with Chili Gonzalez. Chili Gonzalez and Flying Lotus. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. And to get you started, gonna play you something by Flying Lotus's uncle, John Coltrane. We're gonna hear Evolution Part 2, an excerpt of Evolution Part 2 from the Live in Seattle double LP, recorded September 30th, 1965 at the Penthouse in Seattle, Washington. So, right now, here's John Coltrane, Flying Lotus's uncle, with Evolution Part 2. And then an interview with Flying Lotus, and in an interview with Chili Gonzalez. All on Denardwar, the human serviette radio show on WFMU. Mm-hmm. 